Hello and welcome to DeFi 2.71 podcast. My name is Seraphim and today we're going to be chatting with Simon, CEO and co-founder of Volts Labs. Hey guys, welcome. We're here with Simon, CEO and co-founder of Volts Labs. Hey Simon. Hey, super nice to be here. How's it going? Uh, it's good to have you here. Uh, could you perhaps tell us a bit more about like your background? How did you get into crypto in the first place? What led you to uh, to this you know point in time, point in your life? <laughs> yeah, sure. I mean, the, the funny thing is that I was originally supposed to have nothing to do with financial services. I'd got into university to go study architecture. And it's, it's kind of one of these things where you look back and you realize how an experience affected the decisions you made. And, and for me, that basically was, I was playing rugby, 18-year-old in Australia, and I couldn't get a job. And that wasn't because I didn't have any experience. It's actually because it was the middle of the global financial crisis. And that experience then basically led me to go to university, switch to economics. And I came out the other side and went on to set up three different financial technology businesses, using that in the broadest possible sense. I did some other stuff. So kind of went to be a consultant at Oliver Wyman, went out to Stanford and study and that type of thing. But really the, the main thing for me was like, actually having had this experience, let's try and do everything we can to build a better financial system. What kind of businesses did you set Yeah, up? so the first, the, just kind of walking you through those three. So the first one, honestly, it wasn't successful. It was, it was, it was like a personal finance fintech business. Um, but you just learn so much as a human. Um, and you also kind of really learn about what it is that you want to do with your career. Mm. Um, and then between the first and the second, actually, I uh, was exploring two kind of big themes from a technology perspective. One was blockchain and the other was uh, AI. And I'd actually been introduced to crypto whilst I was at university. It was really early. It was like 2012, mm. right? Like, and there's, there's pretty much nothing you could do with the technology at that point in time. Uh, but by the time I got to this transition between my first and my second business, it's a little bit later. Ethereum existed, all this type of stuff. Um, so I would have been like super early if I'd done something then, but ultimately decided, let's go do this AI business. What we did is we, we basically fully automated the thought processes of a human financial advisor. So it's the first time ever that, that kind of this piece of infrastructure had been built. And then coming into the beginning of last year, that company was starting to go through an exit process. So I basically agreed with, with the founders that I was going to go and leave and, and set up uh, something in DeFi. I like, had this massive itch that I had to scratch. Um, and that's when I went and found my co-founder, Arta. So just briefly to kind of give you some of his background, he's got a master's in statistical science from Oxford. Uh, he's been a quant at Bank of America and also been a machine learning engineer at Amazon. So he's got a great blend of uh, both math, of tech, and of finance. And he and I then set out on what we would describe as like a mammoth research task, right? To, to really try and unlock what we felt would be the next zero to one innovation that's required to move the whole space forwards. Cool, cool. It seems like you both have a bit of an AI background, it seems, right? Well, it's more, it's more just like tech, like super, like, interest in all things like technology related and 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 anything it, it, it happens so many times in history where you just have a kind of a new breakthrough technology that emerges and then the things that you can do with that technology just kind of vastly change the way that you can think about what you can build and create in the world yeah, like DeFi, like yeah. DeFi, and exactly and I, I think if you if you look at those two fields actually one of the things for both myself and arta actually and um Arta's Russian, so like he's a Russian national, so it's kind of easier for him to use this language. He, he talks, he talks about the fact that AI is increasingly becoming like communist, right? It's kind of like it's being used as a way of um, 
basically solidifying your position in the market and restricting other people from getting access to that technology, which doesn't feel right. And that pushed, it's not the only reason, but, but that this is one of the reasons that it pushed both of us towards kind of going into blockchain where it's actually the polar opposite. It's all about building stuff that's open source, it's composable, it's going to be used by everybody, or it's got the opportunity to be used by everybody in the world. And like what you're doing with your career Right in in that instance is transformational relative to if you're working in AI business and you're basically just maintaining control over something that's centralized. It's actually interesting. Very rarely people make that observation that AI and crypto in general are like very different. Actually, they're in fact opposites. People don't make that connection usually because AI is a very centralized concept of one like thing deciding for everything. Right, like that's how they do it in communist countries, I guess. Right, that's why they're betting so much in AI. So one decision maker and DeFi is completely about completely the opposite. Right, it is completely the opposite. And I think what's what's really interesting is that if you if you, if you kind of really zoom out, like these are the two big from a technical perspective, the two big macro trends going on at the moment. Is there a version of the future where they actually merge? Mm. Right, and and I think if and I think it will happen inevitably. But if you start to have AI based systems built on the blockchain, right? And what that enables is actually starts to become quite interesting. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's that's like, you know, if you've watched Terminator, that's that's like your like edge case risk. <laughs> yeah, you write these different AIs that are decentralized and then they think exactly the same way and end up with the same kind of centralized yeah, outcome. That's the big risk. Or it's right? more just some like a, a primitive and a protocol that you like, that, that is able to think for itself and that you like, actually can't stop right like and like but that's that's yeah, yeah, yeah. i don't see that happening anytime soon that's high, let's hope not at least, <laughs> at least next five years at least let's just <laughs> yeah i think i mean i think the outlook really is um like you the, the truth is you know when when those two fields do merge i think it's going to be kind of create a lot of good for the world mm. um uh you know technical breakthroughs more often than not they they do lead to like extremely positive outcomes for the whole of society yeah, yeah agreed Let's come back to that. But before that, let's talk about vaults. Like, what is vaults? Uh, like, yeah. What was the journey like? Like, tell us, tell me everything. Yeah. So, so Archer and I, we um, set out on what we describe as like a, a kind of a, a research like period. Um, and, and we have deliberately always taken a research focused approach to everything we do. And what that looked like is it, it is six months in total. The first three months is very much the macro level. Um, so, kind of looking at where DeFi is today, where we think DeFi needs to get to in order to become the financial system for the whole of the world, right? And, and what is the next zero to one innovation that's required in order to move the whole sector forwards? And what we landed on is that the, the next pillar that's really needed in this system is interest rate swaps, mm -hmm. which may seem obvious for people that now look at it, right? And see what we're doing. But at the time, it really, it really was not obvious at all. Um, and... Like I guess just to point to the macro opportunity there, if you look at traditional finance as an example, there's a quadrillion of notional exchanges each year. It's like cartoonishly large. Um, and it's, it's that large because it supports such a wide spectrum of use cases uh, from risk management through to speculation, through to the construction of many different products, uh, both, both for corporates and actually for retail. Mm. And for people who are not kind of financial, whilst... Uh, you you might not know what an interest rate swap is. Actually, there's a reasonable chance you've interacted with a product that uses it. You just haven't realized. Mm. So if you ever had a fixed rate savings account or a fixed rate mortgage, what's actually happening in the background is there's kind of real low-level capital markets infrastructure 
which is interest rate swaps, being used to package up that product such that you can use it as a consumer. Could you, could you explain to the audience a bit what an interest rate swap is in a simple way? Yeah, so so kind of in, in a kind of simplest form, basically enables you to exchange one rate of return for another. Um, so the way that we've built it with Vaults is that you can exchange a variable rate for a fixed rate or a fixed rate for a variable rate, um, which basically means that if you have, for example, an asset that generates a variable rate of return, but you don't want that variable rate associated with it, you can essentially sell your variable rate and receive a fixed rate back. Yeah. Um, you can also use it to do what we describe as variable to variable, to variable swaps. So for example, if you had CETH or EETH, Right, and um, you wanted to exchange the, the rate of that maybe for kind of stake teeth, you could actually enter a variable to variable swap uh, where you never actually touch the underlying asset, but you are kind of synthetically exchanging the rate of return that's associated with that underlying asset. Yeah, let, maybe it's good to, for context, to understand like why swaps are such a capital efficient tool in traditional finance. Like before that, it was mostly like government bonds, right, where you have like a like a, a bond that costs, like, I don't know, $100,000, basically. If you wanted to trade the interest rate of that, you needed to have the whole notion or borrow that. And then the bankers came up with this idea, why do all that? Let's just have like a punt between us. Like, I want to, I bet the long, the rates are going to go, I, I, gonna, I want the fixed rate, you want the variable rate. Let's just kind of swap exposures yeah. without having that huge notion involved, right? Is that kind of the idea? Yeah, so so if we kind of come back to like the Genesis story of Vaults, right? We we did this first three months where it was like macro level. The next three months was very much micro level. We made a decision we wanted to build out interest rate swaps. It's like, how do you introduce this into a system where the constraints are fundamentally different? And I, I guess the key thing there, if you compare it to traditional finance, right? For the most part, this has changed a little bit. Um, uh, but for the most part, in traditional finance, you have counterparty risk. So I enter a swap with you. Right, and I'm basically expecting you to be good for your side of the deal, and I'm expected to be good for my side of the deal. In DeFi, obviously that doesn't work, right? Um, uh, so you have to basically think from first principles, which is exact, exactly what we did, how can you achieve a similar outcome in a world where the constraints are just completely different? And that's what kind of basically led us into, or took three months to, to figure out how on earth we build this. Um, and basically the way that that works is we have from an architectural perspective, we have kind of like two core components to the protocol. So we've got what we describe as a virtual AMM, which is effectively used just for price discovery only. And within that, actually, we use the concept of concentrated liquidity, which we borrowed from Uniswap v3. And then separate to that, we have what we describe as our margin engine, which I often describe as like the beating heart of the protocol. It's responsible for actually like the kind of holding the physical assets. Um, it deals with liquidation events. It defines the margin that you kind of can trade with as, as, a, as a trader. Um, it, it basically does everything other than what the VAMM does, <laughs> um, uh, which is basically acting as a price oracle. And the net impact of all of that means that as a trader, you can trade with leverage, right? Which is incredibly important when you're trading rates. Um, and as a liquidity provider, you can obviously use concentrated liquidity, which is more capital efficient. So you add all of that up together, and the actual uh, kind of primitive is around 3,000 times more capital efficient than alternative structures. And if you were to ask me kind of where I think DeFi is going at the most macro level, we've had a lot of innovation that's taken place so far, which uh, has not necessarily been capital efficient, 
But DeFi is now starting to move to this place where you know capital markets are supposed to be capital efficient. Um, and a lot of the new innovations that are coming through, which I think are going to drive the next wave of growth, are ones which are extremely capital efficient, mm. which is a key, a key like design criteria that we are working towards whilst we try to kind of design Vault's protocol. Right. Before we get into the nitty-gritty of the protocol, the DeFi e- ecosystem, how would it benefit? from interest rate swaps in general or fixed income? Like what's the biggest use case you think? Yeah, so, well, I think there's a wide spectrum of use cases. And I think the, so, so the, at the most macro level, the way that we often describe it is that in order to serve the financial needs of the whole of the world, right? Like you need interest rate swaps to exist, right? As of today, we basically have um, variable rates for the most part. Um, you, there are some fixed rate protocols and we can obviously talk about that, which are a little bit siloed. Um, uh, but in order for us to start kind of like packaging up products like fixed rate mortgages or even like structured products for corporates or even to enable corporates to start hedging risk on chain, right, such that DeFi as an ecosystem can serve the financial needs of the world, we need interest rate swaps to exist. Right. So it's not just, you're not just thinking about DeFi in general at this moment. You're thinking about TrackFi guys getting in and when they start using DeFi, they realize they don't have rate swaps to hedge their stuff. So once that we have, we, you've got that, you can enable lots more, a lot more inflows, right? From, from yeah. So there's 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 probably I wouldn't I wouldn't quite go as far as say fifty percent of the conversations, but not not far off is is like trading firms, CFI organizations, um, you know, kind of more centralized entities, right? They're, they're not like primitives in themselves, but they are using DeFi as a financial system, and they come to us, and they say. Hey, there's no way of me hedging risk on chain, and you're you're building this, and and yeah, I mean, like our fundraise, obviously, lots of fundraisers go mad um, in DeFi. Our fundraise went particularly mad because there's a lot of these institutions like we need this to exist. I see now. I see. So it's like you're centralized. You're some sort of a centralized uh, service provider that provides fixed rates. And how do you you go into DeFi to get those rates to get those rates, and then to hedge you have nothing, you know? So you like there's no way to hedge basically. Trade your book around. Right? Yeah. So like a, just a real simple example is if you've got a CFI organization, it promises fixed rates to its consumers. It then deploys that capital into DeFi where you can only get variable rates of return. All of a sudden, you've got on your balance sheet, you've got a liability mismatch, yeah. and there's no way of hedging that away. But with vaults, you can now all of a sudden do that. I see now. I see. This is uh, this is pretty cool. I see. That's true. That's one, but that's one use case. And I think this is the thing with interest rate swaps as a primitive. It's 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 a super low level building block of any financial system, and and we expect that obviously to be the case in DeFi, because it supports such a, and enables such a wide range of of use cases. And what we really expect to happen is. Um, there's, there's kind of like two sides to it. There's there's CFI and trading firms, which we expect to start kind of coming in and using vaults for both speculation and risk management. But on the other side, and this is where we really do spend 50% of like our time talking to people, is is it's acting as a super low level primitive that will enable people to construct a whole bunch of new products in DeFi. Okay. Cool. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a great point because I mean, you could argue that you can um, reach critical mass with speculators alone. I mean, crypto essentially, or most instruments initially were for speculation. But yeah. I feel like hedging activity, stuff that it's underlying, the underlying primitive for structured products is something a lot more sticky. And it seems like you're addressing this because that's what the firms actually need to hedge, not just to you know, punt around. Yeah, I think we, we, get it, we get a lot of people coming to us with various different use cases, um, but being able to hedge risk on chain is definitely one of them. Right. 
So when do you expect this to become like a... I mean, fixed income protocols already have started to kind of become prominent, right? So you have Notion, then we have Element, you have uh, other guys. What, what what do you think, like, I mean, they're obviously are pioneers as well in their space, but what do you think kind of is lacking so far in DeFi in terms of rates? Is it capital efficiency or there's something else, composability? Like? Yeah, I think so. So all of just the headline is that us as an industry, right, we need, we need lots of innovation across lots of different areas. And, I, I, you know, I think kind of what these guys are doing in their own respective areas is, is actually genuinely kind of brilliant. And, and we'd love to, we have enjoyed watching those guys grow. Um, that said, there's, you know, there's, there's, there's various different kind of innovations that are required for the whole system to be able to kind of function as the financial system for the whole of the world. I think what's missing and what's coming with vaults is the ability to have something which is uh, super composable uh, it's super capital efficient and it supports a real wide variety of use cases because mm. fixed like turning an asset into a fixed rate asset is one small use case that exists with vaults uh, but there's a much wider set of use cases beyond that could you talk about these use cases beyond the fixed income stuff? yeah so i think there's i mean obviously we talked about speculation we talked about uh, kind of risk management one that uh, kind of goes beyond that is um like being able to basically use vaults as a way of reconstructing the rate that you get on an underlying asset. So if I give an example of this, imagine you have uh, kind of ETH in a Borrowland protocol. Uh, it, could, it could be Euler, of course, it could be Compound. Um, I'm going to use Compound because they don't support staked ETH at the moment, uh, and I know that you do. But imagine you got your ETH in... Oh, we'll have wrapped state ETH. You'll have wrapped state yeah, ETH, yeah. right. So, so imagine you got ETH in, in compound, you're borrowing against that. Um, but the kind of C ETH rate you, of return you don't like, right? So you want to get your state ETH rate of return. What you can actually do with vaults is just by depositing margins and never actually touching your underlying assets, you can uh, synthetically swap your C ETH rate for a state ETH rate of return. At which point, You've basically used vaults as a primitive to reconstruct the rates you're getting on these underlying assets without ever actually touching them. So let's get into the mechanics of vaults. How does it actually work in terms of um, who's underwriting this risk? What are they doing? Are they hedging underneath? Are they just uh, passively sitting there? Like how does the under uh, the underwriting process work? Yeah. So the so the mechanic uh, of the AMM is is similar to Uniswap v3 with some some key differences. So you basically have three agents that operate on Vault's protocol. You've got uh, kind of two different types of traders. So you've got what we describe as a fixed taker, where you're essentially selling a variable rate in exchange for a fixed rate. We've got a variable taker, where you're essentially selling a uh, kind of a, ver a fixed rate in exchange for a variable rate. And then you've got liquidity providers, who are basically facilitating trading taking place on either side of the market. And... The way that it works is uh, the protocol is generalizable to the point that we can create a, a pool on top of any asset with a variable rate of return. So imagine if you have eDAI, for example, it generates a variable rate, you create a pool on top of that. And um, what then happens is from a liquidity provider's perspective, and what's super interesting is if you think about your rates on eDAI, right, your, your fixed rate is going to be in DAI, your variable rate is going to be in DAI. So as a liquidity provider, in order to create either side of the market, you just have to deposit one asset, which is DAI, to create both sides. So as a, as a liquidity provider, you no longer have the concept of impermanent loss. 
It's it's replaced with other risks, but you no longer have that as a concept. So it's completely synthetic, essentially. You provide dye, that's the margin. It's it's yeah. all completely synthetic, yeah. So so even as a trader on either side, you just deposit margin in order to trade. Right, and you provide for a specific range, let's say, uh, wait, what are we looking at? Like an interest rate range? Yeah, so, so if I talk through an example, so as a... So the AMM defines the fixed rate relative to the variable rate of the underlying pool. So as a liquidity provider, if I think that the majority of trading activities can take place between 5 to 10%, I deposit my liquidity within that tick range. And then what happens is, if, if you just play this through, so a fixed taker comes in, they uh, kind of want to trade away the variable rate associated with EDI in exchange for a fixed rate. Uh, they deposit margin, and then they trade a set amount of notional Right, so the, you, you basically we have an on-chain margin engine that defines the leverage you can trade with. So they trade a set amount of notional, and they initially use the liquidity provider's liquidity to basically enter into a swap. But then it, imagine a variable taker comes in and trades the exact same amount of notional, and the price is still at the same point on the AMM. What that actually does is it nets off those two positions. So the liquidity provider's liquidity then effectively gets released from that swap it goes back into the AMM to continue to collect fees. Ah, so it's like the liquidity providers are like the temporary liquidity and if it's a one-sided market. So if it's a two-sided market, they don't do much. They just collect fees. If it's a two-sided market, yeah. So so the way that a liquidity provider makes the most money in terms of fees is they basically want balanced trading activity on either side, mm -hmm. at which point their liquidity is continuously getting recycled such that it's just collecting fees. But what if it's one-sided for a long time, let's say, do they, how do they make money then, or do they not? Yeah, so if, so this is this is where we say that, so we, so you no longer have impermanent loss as a, as a risk, as an LP, but we have what we describe as funding rate risk. So if you enter, if you deposit liquidity within a tick range where there isn't balanced trading activity, then what you're going to be doing is you're going to be supporting that trade for a period of time. Oh, right, so... There'll be funding fees paid to the LPs. Is that? Do I get it right? Like, well, so it depends. If, if the so if you if you enter into a swap, so 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 always with the swap, there's a variable and a fixed rate that needs paying to somebody. Um, if the variable rate's higher than the fixed, right, then there's cash flows in one direction. If the variable is lower than the fixed, there's cash flows in the other. Right. So as a liquidity provider, if you get locked into a swap where those cash flows are moving against you, then you have this funding rate risk, where you're basically uh, you are kind of for a period of time supporting the other person's trade. Right, right. But it, but it could also work the other way. So it's like a market maker that just didn't hedge his exactly. exposure, basically. Exactly. Right. But then you can, and I guess this is coming back to like the generalizability of the protocol, like actually what's, and the use cases, um, what's really interesting is you can start to use V3, right, with tick ranges uh, to do all sorts of uh, kind of like interesting, pro or construct all sorts of interesting products like caps and floors. And you can even start to replicate uh, kind of specific option payouts, right? Well, I think that's interesting because um, I think Guillaume from Panoptic, he came up with this idea that you can kind of provide liquidity as ticks and basically replicate options portfolios, right? Uh, yeah. Options payoffs. And yeah. This basically creates op so options markets in essence, right? Cause exactly. You can, you can start hedging things that way. Exactly. Right? So the, so the, the, the and again, like, this is where I come back to the use cases of vaults. Like this is a really wide spectrum. You, you've got, you've got all of the, these kind of like so-called simpler products, right? The, the simplest of which is do you just want a fixed rate of return on your EDI? Um, but then it actually on the complexity spectrum, it actually 
the more that you do research, the more you kind of yeah. realize actually there's all these different products that you can build with it too. Yeah, you can do at least swaps for instance. So, right, uh, yeah, that's cool. And we have a team. So we, so we, we, you know, we view ourselves as super low level primitive. We, we expect lots of people to build on top of the protocol. Um, there is a team building swaps at the moment. Oh, cool. Yeah. So not you, but it's not team. us. Yeah, ah, cool. Super it's just cool. building that abstraction there, right? That's yeah. super cool. Uh, I think swaps are quite interesting, actually, yeah. Yeah. in the crypto. All right. In terms of like the liquidity providers on, on the vaults, right? They deposit, I suppose they get like a NFT, like in the Uniswap, right? Is there some sort of a different composability involved or is it just like Uniswap? Can you use your LP tokens for something as well? Yeah, so we we deliberately, I mean, I mean we, we thought about what, whether you tokenize positions on the protocol uh, and, and effectively use that as a way of creating secondary markets. Um, for version one of the protocol, that we just decided it, it it risked introducing vulnerabilities that we just wouldn't be aware of. Uh, so we decided not to do that for version one of the protocol. Right. Um, so as a liquidity provider, you deposit margin. The margin is sat in in your account, um, uh, and that effectively is defining your position. Right, right, right. I mean, it's obviously it's V one. Like, it's so. it's version one, yeah. And there's all sorts of other stuff which we you know. So at the moment, pools all have different maturities. Um, uh, we got some kind of really interesting thoughts on that. So which basically the, the point there is that fragments liquidity across pools. Mm. We got some really, really interesting thoughts around how we can build version two of the protocol where liquidity providers can provide liquidity across multiple different terms, mm. right? Just with the same liquidity. Um, but you're still, as a trader, you're still inter- entering into a pool with a specific term. Yeah, that's a good point, right? Because you could fragment liquidity a lot if you use CE, like EVE, Eve, right? Is the idea like some sort of a yield aggregator where you put in and it just chooses the best raise? Sort of. Thing? There's people building that, okay. right? So, so again, this is this is stuff which we like. We we're really focused on the primitive, mm. right? And, and and there's lots and lots and lots of things that you can start to compose on top of it, and that is one which people are building. That's super cool, super cool. So, yeah. so there's there'll be actual arbitrage activity going on between raids and stuff. So yeah, exactly, cool. and even just like LP optimization vaults. Right, like where you, if you got like different, there could be different trading activity on different pools. There could be different rates, of, like where the fixed rate is sat at on different pools. And so, so as a liquidity provider, actually, um, you can build these optimizing vaults, which de- you know programmatically deploy capital from one pool to another, such as they optimize returns. Mm. Let's talk about adverse scenarios for people. Like, how do liquidations work in, in vaults? Yeah, and what's the scenario that could work? Okay, play out. So we maybe if I like describe why there's leverage to start off with. So if you're um, a, a variable taker, you're you're selling a fixed rate in exchange for a variable rate, and just imagine you're trading a hundred notional. The fixed rate's ten percent. It's a year year long term, right? So a really naive model would require you to deposit ten. Right to cover the fixed rate for the whole term, but what that assumes it assumes the variable rate is going to drop to zero and then stay zero for an entire year. Which, um, just if you model it out, it's extremely unlikely uh, to ever actually happen. So it's that, and, and even in that instance, you are already trading with 10x. Right, so you got depositing 10 margin, but you're trading 100 notional. What we actually built is we built an on-chain margin engine that computes predictions on what uh, kind of like rates or kind of will will be through the course of the term right and then that defines uh, based on like some uh, kind of calibration that we put into it from a risk parameterization perspective that defines the amount of margin that you need to deposit as a trader 
or, or rather it defines the minimum margin that you need to deposit as a trader. So you can choose to deposit more if you want to. So you, you basically have this minimum margin amount and then there's a liquidation threshold which is below that. But if you end up in a position where you are kind of uh, supporting someone else's trade, right? So there are negative cash flows that you're essentially accruing on a block by block basis. You then end up approaching your liquidation threshold. So your, your margin is effectively getting consumed on a block by block basis, moving towards your liquidation like threshold. If you enter into that space, then a liquidator bot can now trigger a liquidation event using your margin. And what that does at a practical level is it actually enters in like an uh, opposite-sided swap uh, such that it nets off the position, right? And then they take a proportion of your margin as a fee. Right, okay. And this, this basically makes sure that the protocol never ends up insolvent. So, so as, a, as, a, as a trader, you can, you, you, you can see like what's, what's interesting, unlike, say, Borrowland protocols where you can have a, a sudden drop in the value of an asset which can move you instantly into like liquidation threshold. If you've got a spike in rates, it doesn't cause a liquidation event immediately because your, your margins effectively being consumed on a block-by-block basis. Mm. So you be able to you have a lot more warning as a trader of this this kind of like event taking place, and you can choose to either top up your margin, mm. or you could enter and unwind yourself, so you don't have the penalization fee of the of the liquidator pot. But if you don't do that and it enters liquidation like a kind of kind of zone, then a, then a bot can trigger a liquidation event. Just so I understand, the liquidator takes on the position and then takes the opposite side to net them off and takes a bit of the margin. Is that yeah? Right? So it just if you say so, so if you play it through, so your your variable whether you're a fixed taker or a variable taker, right? If you're if you're on one side and and then you enter on the other side, your variables always can net off, right? So the only thing that can be different is your fixed taker positions because the price could have moved from when you entered versus the point that you trigger and unwind. Right, so so there's going to be a proportion of cash flows from a fixed perspective, where either that's going to be in your favor, at which point you can just enter the unwind; it's really easy, or it can be have moved against you, at which point there's going to be like a, a set amount of cash flows that you need to support until the end of the term, mm. right? But your your margin, it, the, it's it's kind of structured so that the liquidation zone, right, means that your margin is always going to be able to support those kind of like net cash flows. Right. At which point your margins used to do that and trigger the unwind, and the liquidator bot gets a proportion of the, the kind of like original margin as well. So, so you're left with some margin, like after a liquidation event, or you can be left with some margin as after a liquidation event, but but the rest of your margin has been used to support the unwind and pay the liquidator bot. What about some really adverse scenarios, like on the oil, for instance, we. Obviously, we realize that things can go really wrong. So we have yeah. a reserve factor involved where it builds reserves to underwrite the pool if things go wrong, right? Do you have like some, some sort of reserves? Uh, yeah, so so we, so we, we've we got like quite a quantitative team. We've never actually talked about the team, but we've got like, no. we've got, we've got, we, we, I mean, honestly, the, the, the team is just incredible. We've got kind of like superstars in, in, in lots of different areas. And, and from a quantitative perspective, um, you know, we, we basically are building out our own risk management software where we are uh, increasing like uh, uh, kind of like the volatility that could take place in all sorts of different scenarios to try and work out exactly like under which scenarios there's these really adverse events that would require something like an insurance module. module. Mm. Um, and that calibration of the parameters 
um, is something which will, will happen on an ongoing basis for, for pools. Um, uh, but, you know, once we've, so we're on testing at the moment, once we've completed kind of all of that work, we're going to make a decision on whether or not an insurance module is even required. Mm. Um, but yeah, something which we could kind of very easily do and plug in. Uh, but right now we don't believe it's required. Nice. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about macro, like some perspectives. Like at the moment, as you know, rates are set by the Fed and central banks. They decide what interest rates are, right? In DeFi, it's not the case, right? So if you had ETH rates, they're completely set by the market. No one can just come in and just say, these are what the rates are going to be like, right? So it doesn't seem to matter now, but let's say 10 years from now, people have metaverse mortgages and all sorts of things that exist there, and they're going to be based on, let's say, Ethereum. Um, how do you think a world would look like where rates are set by the market in DeFi? Like, what would that entail if there's no one who can control them like the Fed does? Well, I think at the highest level is almost the utopia that we're aiming for, which is that you don't have someone that's centrally managing and controlling and making decisions. I mean, who like could the majority of the people listening to this name the people that sat like on the Fed's monetary policy committee? Like, I I highly doubt it. So you have all of these people which you don't know who are making very big and significant decisions that actually affect you as an individual, as opposed to it being market driven. Um, so, I, yes, there's pros and cons of stuff being market-driven. Uh, I suspect that the pros will outweigh the cons. If you actually play that through, though, like, um, you know, centralized, uh, central banks are always going to have a vested interest to uh, maintain control, right? So will DeFi become the financial system of the whole of the world and all central banks will disappear? Uh, hopefully. Like realistically, <laughs> like I don't know. There's there's going to take quite a long time for something like that to take place. Um, but what it what it does do is it introduces competition, and I, you know, you think about the fact that we do not have any form of competition in the way in which like monetary policy decisions are made and and this type of thing. It's kind of crazy, really. Um, and for people that live in the West, I guess you know you you kind of. For the most part, right, the Fed, like Bank of England, ECB, you believe they're actually making like sense, reasonably sensible policy decisions. For people that live in some emerging economies, so if you think about some of the South Africa, uh, South American economies, where they've had hyperinflation and they've just had like bonkers decisions made by like the policymakers, actually now that you've got competition in your financial market. They can't do that stupid stuff because all the all the capital will just leave and it'll just go into DeFi. So, so even if we don't quite get to the utopia where DeFi is the financial system for the whole of the world, right? Like the fact that it exists actually forces centralized finance to become better anyway. Yeah, I mean, like it's just I think even IMF did this report where they said De DeFi is more competitive than TradFi, at least from an operational point of view. Yeah. So they're acknowledging something's going on there. They have to catch up somehow. Yeah, actually, I don't think central banks would go away, but there's a reasonable kind of case to be made that something's going to change. For instance, like, well, I'm not saying we're going back to the gold standard, but one way of influencing DeFi rates would be to like, or let's say inject liquidity or withdraw liquidity, maybe buy ETH, withdraw ETH, yeah. and actually do open market operations like emerging markets do, where they can't issue dollars, 
but they can try to influence their local markets by having a dollar dollar supplies, dollar reserves. Yeah. So maybe there's a scenario where central banks are going to start acquiring ETH because that's the underlying DeFi interest rate kind of uh, asset, right? Yeah. Yeah. I I mean I think it's I mean it's I, mean, I wouldn't even just think about central banks. Like I think about just capital markets more generally, right? Like if we like say say what we're doing at Vaults, like we we are building our interest rate swaps and we, like to help DeFi become the financial system for the whole of the world. Right, but at the same time, we we do want traditional finance to come in and start like trading rates using vaults as a primitive, and when that starts happening, they have a vested interest to start participating in governance. Right, so so I think this blend like it is almost like do you do DeFi could displace traditional finance, um, you know, or there could be some sort of continuum, and like you know, there's various different scenarios that could take place there but yeah like if they if they start becoming more active then actually central banks buying ETH or kind of uh, Goldman Sachs like you know participating in the governance of Vault's protocol right like these things I'm not sure that's a good idea (laughs) (laughs) yeah well maybe it's not a good idea but these things are like scenarios which actually could start to take place uh, speaking of governance, actually, like, uh, is there like a votes governance token? What people will be able to use it for to vote for? So like- the protocol will transition to a DAO. So that inevitably means that there will be some form of token to facilitate voting. Um, uh, like that transition, uh, you know, that for the most part, the the community community is incredibly active already, right? And there's multiple proposals that come through, which people. Uh, are voting on, uh, albeit without a token. Um, but yeah, that transition to to being a, a kind of a, a kind of a, a, f- a fully operable DAO, so to speak, uh, it will happen at some point. But it's just not going to be immediate. What do you think they could be voting? Pe- people could be voting on like like a Uniswap fee pools, this, vault socks. Uh, this, yeah, yeah. Well, we've got some vault swag, which is actually like it. it, it ETH Amsterdam is one of the most popular, which is pretty cool. But um. Uh, no, I mean, it, there's there's all sorts of things. Even the initiation of different pools, because all those pools had terms, right? So you need to vote in advance to create new pools, new assets, bring in new uh, people can build rate oracles, such as we can launch new types of assets on the protocol. This type of thing. Uh, just a bit of a spontaneous thing, but speaking of oracles, so yeah, uh, we discussed this in Amsterdam, I think, but like because you used Uniswap for the for the OP process, right? Like we discovered that if you provide full range of liquidity in Uniswap B3, you can prevent lots of manipulations and attacks, you know, on oracles, right? So I'm wondering, like by creating this LP kind of stuff with interest rates, you're also creating essentially oracles for interest rates, yes. right? Yes, yeah. Like how, what kind of composability are you thinking on top of that? Like, can you build like synthetic exposure to your synthetic exposure? Because you're using your oracles for other things. I don't know. Like, Yeah, can- I'm, I mean, I, it's not. It's uh, just being honest. It's not something that I spent loads of time thinking about right now. But but the rate oracles that we have built, which um, function similar to kind of Uniswap's TWAP, um, that big difference being that it's rates related, right, as opposed to the price of an asset related. Um, uh, you know, that's a primitive in itself, right? And um, it, it kind of we we just built that. We made it open source. We expect lots of people to use it in various different ways. Uh, it's 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 called the way that the protocol functions, um, but it's also something which you know we're just giving to everybody else, and we want them to use it. Now, so I think there's a lot of things you can build with oracles with a strong oracle. Essentially, like you could build like a 
you could go maybe on Rari and create like a lending borrowing protocol for your P positions let's say or like just for interest rates alone like you literally have the interest rate token off yeah uh, E or ETH you know and then borrow against things against it and Create and something. do it synthetically. Yeah, 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 yeah. exactly, exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. at which point it's more capital efficient, and this comes back to like what's going to drive the next wave of growth of DeFi. I think there's going to be multiple elements to that, but capital efficiency is going to be one of them. Yeah, cool, nice. Just the thing that I would add there in terms of rate oracles. So because Vault's markets are synthetic, there's nothing stopping us creating markets for tradfi rates, right? So as long as there's an oracle feed coming in of the price. You could trade. You can trade anything with a variable rate of return. Um, uh, so you know it's not inconceivable in the future that people will start trading Sonya rates on Vault's protocol. Cool. Do you think like um, if you bring TradFi rates to uh, to the um, on chain, what happens to these DeFi rates? Like a lot of them. Like let's say if you take USDC, if you look at fixed income rates on Notional on USDC, they're quite. I think I don't know. I think it was four eight percent. It was quite high. Yeah, which is quite a lot higher than the actual interest rates on the United States bonds, right? If you were to bring TradFi instruments to DeFi, who's going to drag? Like, are DeFi rates going to come down, or the like the TradFi rates are going to go up? Well, I think there's going to be a lot of arbitrage opportunity for for a lot of people that know what they're doing. Yeah. Um, I mean, that, that will exist anyway, right? Like, and I think actually with the introduction of a, a kind of a, a, a kind of synthetic rates market into DeFi is already going to start to present arbitrage between your A die, your C die, your E die. All of these have got different rates of return, and you can start arbing them. Yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, when tradfi rates come into to, to DeFi there's going to be a huge amount of arbitrage opportunity. Yeah, it could be the end of high interest rates in DeFi as well, right? Because <laughs> we would just drag everything down. I mean, or maybe the other way. Maybe we can drag the United States yield curve up in this. <laughs> yeah, well, at the moment, that's like going crazy anyway. But uh, Our CEO, Brandon, he used to work for 10 years in New York, Fed, probably laughing at this. Like, yeah. Guys. All right. Uh, so what's the what's next for Vaults? What's the, um, like, What's the next step? Mainnet? Uh... Yeah, so we're so we're on testnet at the moment. Um, we kind of have been on testnet since March. So, we, like, frankly, we're just getting towards the end of that process, um, which basically means mainnet launches soon. Um, not going to commit, obviously, to an engineering timeline externally, um, but it's Don't we're, do that. we're getting close. <laughs> amazing, amazing, cool. I'm looking forward to the progress and seeing like what's going to come out of it. So. Yeah. All right. Uh, thanks a lot for coming on. Um, it was a great chat. I've learned a lot of things today. So I uh, hope to see you soon again. Yeah, no, great to talk to you. Great to be here. Cheers. Thank you for listening. This was Simon from Vaults Labs. 